So we're in Numbers 32 tonight. Uh, to understand this chapter, it's worth just pointing out. Last week we were in Numbers 31. Uh, the Lord took his vengeance out on the Midianites because they led the Israelites astray uh, into sexual immorality and then idolatry. God used 12,000 Israelites in his hand as an instrument to execute his judgment. And you'll remember that God protected and preserved all the Israelite men who fought. In fact, the Israelites not only had the victory, but they amassed a huge amount of plunder, people, treasure, gold. It was remarkable. And the Israelites who had gone out on behalf of God, they were so overwhelmed at what God had done that they came before him and gave him an offering in response to say thank you, and perhaps in recognition to say, Lord, we deserve your judgment, but you're a God who's so merciful. Indeed, you're a God who's so gracious to us. Well, as we pick things up in chapter 32, it's the aftermath. God's people, you'll remember, are in the plains of Moab. They're in Kadesh Barnea. They're standing, waiting, as it were, to cross the river Jordan and enter into the promised land. This is the second generation. And as they are preparing to go in, two tribes come before Moses and say, we've got a request. Moses, we don't want to cross the river with you. We want to stay here because this land is perfect for our livestock. As we come to look at this passage tonight, I'm going to say this disclaimer. I've really struggled with this passage because when I first read it, I thought to myself, Moses is really angry. (laughs) Like the people, the two tribes, Gad and the Reubenites, they are doing that which is wrong. It's clear from how Moses responds and reacts. Now, I picked up some commentators, and I had that view confirmed, and many of them are very dogmatic. These two tribes are in the wrong. And then again, I read the passage, and in our time, I said, you know what's striking is the Lord never speaks in this passage. The Lord's anger is not kindled in this passage. What does the Lord really think? And, And the passage ends with the Lord or the people saying the Lord has spoken and the two and a half tribes can stay on that side of the le- that side, the, the wrong side of the Jordan and have it as their possession. And so I started asking, is what they did wrong? So tonight, here's a disclaimer. You're going to have to make your mind up. Is what they did here sinful? Or is what they did here a compromise? A compromise that God was willing to accept? For what it's worth, John Calvin, (laughs) let's just say John Calvin's view, he says that God's people can make a wrong decision that God can use for his own good purposes. And he can enlarge his land and use his people. That's Calvin. I'm tempted to agree with Calvin. He kind of has the view that What they did was wrong, but God used it nonetheless for his good. One more thing to say. If you were here two Sundays ago in the morning, 
Dick preached on Joshua chapter 22, the first part of it at least. And that passage is the story of Joshua leading the people and the, the, the agreement that the Gadites and the Reubenites, well, they were faithful. They did that which was right. They fought. They went ahead. And it was an excellent exposition of the text. And so, in some ways, if you, you have that passage still fresh in your mind, we're going backwards to read about the history of how that all came about. So, as we walk our way through this passage, five headings. We're just going to walk through the text. Verses 1 through 5, the Gadites and the Reubenites come to Moses with their request. Verses 6 to 15, Moses responds to the request. Verses 16 to 19, the Gadites and the Reubenites re rectify, they slightly alter the request. Verses 20 to 24, Moses affirms this new request. And then we see the agreement in the, very, in the last section, verse 25 to 42, of what will happen for all the parties. So let's pick things up in verse 1. Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. You've heard it said, if life gives you lemons, what do you do? You make lemonade. What if life gives you lots and lots of livestock? What do you do? Well, you look for land that your livestock can graze in. And that's exactly what the Gadites and the Reubenites did. They stood back, they looked at the land that they were in, and they said, we've got all of this livestock, and fascinatingly, in God's providence, we've defeated all of our, God has defeated all of the people who lived here. We could set up home here. This is perfect for our cattle. Was it a providence that they were brought to this place, that they defeated all the people who once inhabited these lands, and that this land was perfect for their livestock? Or was it sinful that they even had this thought? In fact, look at the, the next part of verse 1. It says this, And they saw the land of Jezir and the land of Gilead, and behold, the place was a place for livestock. The commentators who are very dogmatic that the Gadites and the Reubenites made a bad decision will say, oh, look, they saw. When you walk by sight and not by faith, it's dangerous. Remember Eve? She saw that the forbidden fruit was pleasing to the eye. Remember Law? He saw that the land closest to Sodom and Gomorrah was the better land, and so he wanted that. And so the commentators will say, this was a bad decision. They saw, behold, this was a place for their livestock, and clearly they were being led not by faith, but by sight, because God had promised not this land, but the land across the river to his people. So was it sinful that they followed their eyes or was it providence? And it was a good, pragmatic decision. This land, it's suitable. This land, it's available. This land would be ideal for them to set up home. Well, as we read on, we now 
have them verbalizing their request. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, that's what they said, they, they list all the names of the places, Atrof, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Sebam, Nebo, Dion. And, and then they spiritualize it and they say that the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock. Here's our reason for why we want this land. God rid it of all, its, all of our enemies. All these cities are available for the taking. And if God did it, then surely, surely we should take it for ourselves and our livestock. And so they said to Moses, if we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now, that last line was like they set a fuse in Moses' mind. I, I, I honestly wish I could have been a fly on the wall, as it were, because I reckon as soon as they said that light, do not take us across the Jordan, Moses' face went red with rage. His eyes would have popped out his head. He probably looked for a rock to smack his staff off again. He was furious. And you get that sense as you read this next section as Moses responds to the request. Look at what Moses says, verse 6. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? So when they say, do not take us across the Jordan, we'll just stay here, we want this land, it's perfect for us, they are implicitly saying, we don't want to go to war. We want to settle here. You guys all go to war. We'll just set up shop here. Moses diagnoses, here's your problem. Are you saying you're going to sit here while all of the other tribes go to war? We're a covenant community. Unity is essential among the people of God. God has promised us this land. God's plan and purpose has always been that together, remember the 12,000 who executed the Lord's vengeance on the Midianites, they were taken from each tribe. God wanted his people to be in this together as they crossed the Jordan. Secondly, in verse 7, Moses says, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Moses knows that if they make this decision, they are going to set an awfully bad precedent. Well, if they get to stay on this side of the river, if they get to take this land that's perfect for their livestock, why, why don't we, we do it? Other tribes. And interestingly, half of the tribe of Manasseh they end up staying on this side of the river. You see, one of the things about God's people, when they want to do something that looks good or perhaps comfort or convenient, it can be contagious. It can set a bad precedent, precedent so that others want to do the same you know, lukewarmness in, a, in the people of God is, is contagious. Ian Duguid in his commentary numbers says this. Do you know, each of us has a part to play in setting the spiritual temperature of our own congregation. 
If I'm cool toward God, comfortably satisfied with what I already have, then that coolness will dampen my neighbor's enthusiasm for God. Equally, if I'm on fire for the Lord, passionately pursuing a life of holiness and service, then something of that heat will radiate out to those around me. We never live our lives in a vacuum. Our commitment or our lack of commitment affects the body as a whole. And Moses recognized that. If these two tribes want comfort and convenience, well, it's going to be rampant. It's going to have a negative consequence on the wider people of God. And the last thing Moses wants is God's people reneging on God's plan and purpose. Do any of you like fiery preachers? You know, like Paul Washer. Any of you sometimes need to listen to a sermon, you know, that you know is just going to make you feel a bit uncomfortable and speak really directly to you? Well, if you're someone who likes that sort of preaching, you would have loved this sermon that Moses preached. Beginning in verse 8 to 15, Moses preaches one of the greatest sermons that we have in the Old Testament. And it is fiery. And I, I hate psychologizing things, but I reckon that the reason that Moses is so zealous and passionate here is because these guys with their requests do not let us cross the Jordan with you. Hair on earth. This is deja vu. Numbers 13 and 14, he'd stood in the same place. The spies had gone over to look out, check out the land. They'd come back, two different reports, and the people said, do not let us cross the Jordan. <laughs> do not take us over there. And Moses remembered the consequence. Because the people of God agreed with a bad report, God made a judgment. All of you who are 20 years and older, for 40 years you will wander in the wilderness and then you'll die and you will not see the promised land. And because of Moses' own sin, you too, Moses. And this was now personal for Moses. He's got two more tribes coming to him 40 years later, part of the second generation, and they're saying, Moses, we do not want to cross the River Jordan. And as the leader of God's people, Moses needs to address this problem. And so what does he do? He preaches this powerful sermon and he says to them, your fathers did this. You can't get more personal than that. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, for when they went up, verse 9, to the valley of Eskol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled in that day. And he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, none except Caleb and Joshua. Verse 13, And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all that generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, You've risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all this people. 
Nowhere do we read about the Lord then saying, nowhere do we read in this chapter, and then the Lord's anger was kindled against these two tribes. We don't read that. But one of the things, Moses, his anger's kindled. And one of the reasons his anger's kindled is because he remembers the past. When God's people disobeyed, the Lord acted in judgment. And Moses does not want that to happen again to the second generation. He doesn't want it to be like father, like son. He doesn't want a rerun. He doesn't want a repeat. He wants God's people to go forward into the promised land together, united. Moses' warning to God's people is, do not, do not abandon the Lord's plans and purposes for your life. And church tonight, we need to be told that. You see, our sinful hearts will often be drawn away from the Lord's plans for our life. Sometimes it will be the eyes that will take us away. So maybe you're single and there's something really beautiful and they're showing interest in you, but they have no Christian character, no Christian commitment, and you think this, this might be good for me. And the thing that's taken you away is you've been led by sight and not by faith. You've got your fingers in your ear and you don't want to hear what God's word has to say. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's income and wealth. You think to yourself, I could get this job. I could take this role. And this will make me more wealthy. This will make me more comfortable. But all the while, you know, if I do this, it's going to have implications, whether for my integrity or morality or implications just for how much time I can devote to my spirituality. Moses warns God's people because he does not want them to settle for less than God has promised. And church, we need to be warned. God does not want you or I to settle for what is less. God wants what is best. God's ways are the best ways and the most blessed ways. Now, what is fascinating is it appears, so, so Gad and Reuben, the, Reuben, the Gadites and the Reubenites, they make this request, Moses responds, and it seems that the Gadites and the Reubenites, like, they, they come apart and they say, let's just have a little discussion. <laughs> In light of what Moses has said, we should probably think this through again. And so they tease it out. And then you read verse 16, and we read these words. They then came near to Moses. So this conversation is not public. This isn't so that Eliezer and the, the leaders of the congregations can hear. This conversation is now private. And now what the Gadites and Rubites are going to say in their response is they're going to, they're going to slightly change their proposition. So let's listen to it. We will build, verse 16, sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. So Number, the first thing they commit to is we are going to dwell in the land of Gilead. We're going to stay in this side of the river. Number two, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. So their second commitment is we are going to lead 
the people of Israel in its conquest against Canaan. We're going to go across the river. Our fighting men will go first. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. Verse 18, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. They're saying, we are committed to standing with the people of God to ensure that the people of God receive their inheritance. We will stay on that side of the river in the promised land until all God's people get what is theirs. And they say, verse 19, we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. All the commentators who are dogmatic that this is a bad decision say, look at them twisting God's word. They're now saying that the land on the east side of the Jordan is their inheritance. It's interesting. God doesn't give us a verdict on it. It wasn't part of the original promised land, but God can surely enlarge the land that he chooses to give to his people. Now, this is not the original plan of God, but as they rectify their plan, it is very clear from the way that they speak to Moses that there's a different tone in their voice. They're not just grudgingly acquiescing to Moses' rebuke, but there's a complete change of heart. These tribes, they recognize that the land of Gilead is good and suitable. These tribes recognize we want to keep the unity of God's people. We'll go first. We'll fight. These tribes, they say, we want God's people to inherit the promised land. It's not about our comfort. It's not about our convenience. We've looked at this situation and we think that we're better dwelling here than there. And so they devise the proposal and they present it to Moses. And you know what's fascinating? Now we get Moses' response. And his tone has completely changed. Verse 20. So Moses said to them, if you do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, and then after that you shall return and be free of the obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. Moses says, if you do what you're promising to do, this vow that you're making, and it's very clear it's a vow, because if you just look at verses 20 through 23, how many times does Moses say, before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord? You're making a promise in the sight of God. If you promise to do this before the Lord, go before the Lord, then you will have this land and it shall be your possession. Now, if this was sinful behavior, could Moses come and say that? They may be settling in some ways, not for the promised land, settling for, for less. This was not the plan, but it seems that there's a compromise. Now, that word compromise is not a word that we Presbyterian Christians really love. Compromise always sounds negative. But you know, you can get a compromise that is not sinful. You can make a compromise that's good. And the question that some of the commentators ask, was this a good 
compromise or a compromise that God would use for the good of his people. Now Moses, in verse 23, says something so that the Gadites and the Reubenites will not play games. He says, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, we've heard that statement a million times. <laughs> Parents have quoted it to us, you know. <laughs> Be sure <laughs> your sin will find you out if you're not telling me the truth. <laughs> you've heard preachers say it. You may have said it yourself. Be sure your sin will find you out. Moses is a wise leader. He doesn't know what's in the hearts of his Gadites and Reubenites. He doesn't know their motives. See, their motives could be sinful. It could be that they want a convenient, a comfortable lifestyle. Or it could be a pragmatic decision. They look at this land, it's suitable, it's fertile, it's perfect. It's a compromise. Moses says, okay, I don't know what's in your heart, but if there is sin in your heart, you better be sure God will not be mocked. And it's so important that we, we, we heed that ourselves. When we sin, when we do things with the wrong motive and we think we'll get away with it, be sure your sin and my sin will find us out. God is never mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so then we have the affirmation and the recommitment to the covenant by both parties. In verse 25, the Gadites and the Reubenites, they said to Moses, your servants will do as my Lord commands. Moses, your Lord, in this, he's a, the Lord over the people, will do as you command. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, all our cattle should remain in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will pass over every man who is armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. It is interesting to know that there's one thing that they've omitted as they've reatified this covenant. They no longer speak of Gilead as their inheritance. Because maybe when they were using the word inheritance, they were just trying to butter Moses up so that they could get what they want. God in his sovereign providence is going to give them what they want. But this was never the promised inheritance that God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God is a God who is gracious. Even when we make a decision where we're selling for less, he can use it for his people's good. Now, Moses does not want this little affirmation to be private. And so in verse 28, he gets Eliezer. He gets Joshua, who's going to be the leader that's going to lead the people across the land. And he... He says it. If these people go over and they do as they promised, then give them the possession. If they don't, interestingly, he says, they will get their possession in the promised land. But maybe that statement is because if they get their possession in the promised land, they will be within the household of God and God's judgment is no problem on beginning in the household of God, even in the land of Israel as God had sworn, he would, he would make sure 
that our sin will always find us out. Now, the big question is, is this a sinful decision? My answer is, I don't know. I don't know what you think. Maybe you think it is. Or maybe you can see that there's a providence, a a decision that's been made by these two tribes. What is interesting is that one of the things that Moses warned does happen to be realized. When we get to verse 33, Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Shion, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, kingdom of Bashan, the land and its cities with their territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. Notice that the half-tribe of Manasseh have joined in. Like, well, if they're staying on this side, we better get our share on this side. Because they look on and half of them are like, this would be good. Now, Dick preached on Joshua chapter 22, and I need to highlight that what we read in Joshua chapter 22 is that God said this. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And you've obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. And so that would make it look like that this was not sinful and these men were faithful. Faithful to what they promised. I'm glad I'm not preaching the next part of Joshua chapter 22 and it's Dick that's preaching the next part of Joshua chapter 22 because in the next part of Joshua chapter 22, what they do on that other side of the river is that they build a large altar and Phineas hears of it And the ten tribes in the promised land go to the two and a half tribes and they say in the language of Moses, have we not had enough of the sin of Peor from which even yet we've not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? Indeed, they urge them, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Dick will explain what that means. (laughs) Phineas recognizes that two and a half tribes are living outside of the land. They're living in a dangerous place, a land that has a potential of them moving further away from the Lord, a land that is unclean. It's not the promised land that God had given. They said they've made this altar. They said that this altar is a witness. But they have said, we promise we will worship and follow the God of Israel. This passage does not have, if you like, as you get to the end of chapter 32, this perfect ending where it's like, and everything was okay. It just ends. And in chapter 34, we're going to hear God give the boundaries of the promised land, and it does not include Gilead. But I think in some ways what that leaves us to do is to ask this question. As we follow the Lord, as we know the will of God is revealed to us in Scripture, what should we do? We should walk by faith and not by sight. We should trust in God's promises. We should trust in the fact that God knows what's best for us. 
But let me be honest, I know that some of us in providence will find ourselves in situations where we may not think it's sinful, but we'll come to a decision that we think is a compromise. It might not be the best thing for us, but just providence happens to have me in this situation, so can I do it? And those are the situations where we need the wisdom of God. But take heed, tonight we are warned. God speaks to us through Moses and says, do not settle for less. God speaks to us through Moses and says, do not kindle the Lord's anger. God speaks to us through Moses and says, don't let your sin find you out. If it is a sinful motive for why you'd ever make a compromise, do not do it. Don't play games with God. But know this, that the God in whom we trust He is the generous God who truly gives us his best. And we know that because he gave us his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's one thing I can say with absolute confidence and certainty about the Lord Jesus Christ. He never once compromised. He never settled for less. There were moments in the wilderness he was tempted by Satan. And he didn't think to himself, you know, I could just have the kingdoms of the earth right now. I could turn this stone into bread and feed myself right now. He didn't compromise, not once in his life, not once in the slightest. And he did it because he obeyed God's will so that you and I would have his perfect, faultless righteousness. God's way is the best way and the blessed way. And we see that most gloriously in Christ. And one of the things I want to just, is I drive this home at the end, I want to say, when you make a decision, and in our day of individualism, think through your decision of, will this one glorify God? And will this two serve my brothers and sisters in Christ well? Or will this decision be a bad example? set a bad precedent? Will it lead some of my brothers and sisters in Christ to compromise sinfully? Will this glorify God? Will this best serve the people of God? What Jesus did was he said he would be committed faithfully to the glory of God and to the good of his people. And he didn't settle for less. And we see that in his life, death, and resurrection. So we can trust in him with full confidence. And we can ask him for wisdom. And know that he loves to give us wisdom when we need it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom of your word. There's times where we study your word and we don't perhaps fully know exactly how to, f- to, 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 to interpret it perfectly because we don't have that infinite wisdom. But we thank you, Lord, even as we've studied this passage that we've seen that you're the God who can even use decisions that were never part of the plan and you can, in your providence, use them for good. And we thank you, Lord, that we saw the, your, the, the people's faithfulness to what they had promised and what they said they would do. And we pray that we would be a people who would keep our word, a people who would live lives of integrity, 
a people who would walk in your ways and keep your commandments. And Lord, we, we pray too that as your people that we would always look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, would fix our eyes on him, and that as we seek to live our lives, we would always think through asking him for the wisdom that we need. And Lord, help us to be a thoughtful, a godly, and a wise people, a people who have your glory always at the heart of everything we do. Thank you so much, Lord, that you've given us one another. And we pray that even as a family of faith, that you would enable us together to journey so that we would speak truth and love to each other, to help keep each other walking in your ways. Lord, may we never be indifferent or apathetic. May we always want the best. May we love one another as we would love ourselves. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.